You're listening to American Timelines. American Timelines. American Timelines by History for Jerks. History for Jerks. The greatest. The greatest. The greatest podcast ever. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I'm Felatio Newburns. And this is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things that have happened in the past, and we do it year by year. That's right, baby. And I'm with my homie Conroy Parchment, and we do it like that. No. We do it like this. Mm-hmm. I'm Amy. That's Joe. And tonight we are talking about 1960. Three. That's right. This is episode 74. We're starting a new year, y'all. A new year, 1963. And you know what happens? Y'all know at this point, you've listened to enough of these episodes, baby. You know what happens, baby. What's that? What's up, baby? Okay. I'm also Dusty the Rose. The no, American Dream Dusty the Rose, baby. You know what I'm saying, baby? Oh, yeah, baby. What we do is we talk about some things that happened in the year, but we don't really have dates for them. To give us a flavor of the year. But to give us a kind of a, just a, little, a little touch of what the just whole year you know, was about. About. Yeah, just get you get you in the mood for the year, baby. All right, what's the first item up for bed? Well, minimum wage. You want to guess what minimum wage was in 1963, baby? Uh, $2.25. Hey, baby, you're wrong. It was $1.25 an hour. Wow. It was minimum wage. Can you imagine? The price of a VO5 bottle of shampoo, 15 ounces, was 77 cents. Man. And prescription drug Valium was introduced by a Swiss drug company. Was it really? Called Roche Labs. They're still around. Yep. And uh, it went gangbusters, Valium. Valium was very popular. Very popular ever since. Um, The ZIP from ZIP Code stands for Zone Improvement Plan. That was implemented in 1963. Was it really? They didn't have ZIP Codes before 1963? As a means of streamlining the mail system. That's what I thought, but I swear we talked about that before. Remember yeah, I felt zip, like we did too. They had that ZIP Code mascot to yeah, introduce it. That's but right. maybe, maybe that was no, just the, like that was like the there. 80s or something, wasn't it? Where they came out with... It was um, no. a postal service mascot to the f- post office. Was uh, we talked about like Zippy the mascot or something, right? He, didn't have, he was, yeah. You know. But maybe they finally implemented him in '63 or something. I didn't want to do a whole lot of, yeah. You know, postal history is not no, that interesting. Not really that interesting. Nobody cares about that. I do, it is weird though to think about not having any zip codes. Yeah. How about this? Did you know that Harry Smith mm-hmm. was the top bowler in 1963? And in 1963, the top bowler, mm-hmm. Harry Smith, made more money yeah. than the Major League Baseball MVP, Sandy Koufax, and the NFL MVP, Y.A. Tittle, combined. Whoa. Boy, that, bowling was really high up there. In that, the, yeah, uh, it was a big deal then. That's according to Priceonomics.com. I can't believe so that. So you take the NFL MVP and the MLB MVP and combine, and combine their, salaries, their salaries, and the pro bowler made more than them. That's amazing. Now... If you find a pro bowler, they will give you a blowjob for a nickel. They and a, will. Behind they have, an Arby's. They, yeah, they all have side jobs and yeah, stuff now. They, yeah, a lot of them behind an Arby's. Like That's you right. can get some of the best bowler sex behind an Arby's. That's true. Uh, behind and the That's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yep. I have a funny story about uh, a pro bowler at Special Olympics where oh my God. one of the, uh, one of the uh, participants of Special Olympics <laughs> uh, called a uh, pro bowler, a fucking bitch. <laughs> you, you suck, you bitch, right after they called his name. Like, oh, and welcome, pro bowler Harry Smith. And oh, you suck, you bitch. It was very funny. Was an, he was having a bad day. Gentleman so. with disabilities. Yeah. And he, <laughs> yeah, and the poor, poor bowler just waved to everybody. And then uh, also. <laughs> well, you're at the Special Olympics, so you probably kind of know you what's expect up. Something, yeah, something's some, going to happen. Something like that, Special Olympics, yeah. 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 Um, uh, here's a couple things. Did you know that the bacon cheeseburger was the first time uh, it was offered in a restaurant? It was in 1963. 
Oh, who was the gourmet chef that invented that concoction? I bet you in a million years you can't guess what restaurant originated the bacon cheeseburger. You'll never guess. Burger King. Nope. What? A&W. Oh, they were kind of known for their bacon cheeseburgers. According to Thrillist.com, the story goes that in 1963, longtime Michigan franchise owner Dale Mulder... It's always these franchise owners that are coming up with yeah. these recipes. Well, he took cues from his repeat customers, always requesting slabs of bacon on top of their cheeseburgers. And he so he decided to put the thing on the restaurant's menu. And before you scoff at that that can't possibly be true, check this. Not only did several regional journalists investigate and corroborate the claim in the 60s, but when A&W launched an ad campaign in 2014 boasting about it, nobody came forward to contest. Man, so it must be true. According to Thrillist.com, y'all. Yeah. Also in 1963, we saw the invention of the Kodak Instamatic camera. Okay. So before that, I wonder what the cameras were like. Um, before an Instamatic. I think there were giant ones and you had to like take the film. Take the big bulb off and stuff. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Big flash bulb. Uh-huh. Hey, see? Hey, yeah, press. you're right. Press hats. Yep. Hey, see? And they all had big flash Trick bulbs. Or triple dicks. <laughs> um, but did you know that the lead designer of the Instamatic program was Dean M. Peterson? I did not. Peterson was born and raised in South Dakota, graduated from Aberdeen Central High School in 1950, and attended Northern state for two years before transferring to the south dakota school of mines and technology who cares about all that yeah but listen to this he went to work for eastman kodak and earning a bs from mines in 1954 and he married his high school sweetheart we don't need to go into this and he served two years in the army at the end of the korean war all right what's next you don't care i'm cutting you off i'm done with the kodak you don't care about dean peterson i'm calling done with that okay i have a commercial okay Hot dogs. They just call them the wieners. wieners. Yeah, Oscar they still Meyer do. Wiener. They do. Yeah, the Wiener Mobile. Oh yeah, I guess. I was. Like, where did that? Where did the Wiener come from? Where did the name Wiener, wiener Schnitzel? Oh, I guess. Where did Hot German. Dog come from? That would be the one. Because yeah, it up. looks like a dog. It looks like a. Uh, it does not look like. It looks a, like a Dachshund. 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 No, Dachshunds look like hot dogs. Hot dogs don't look like Dachshunds. Yeah, they do. They both look like each no. other. Dachshunds look like hot dogs. Colt forty five malt liquor. You ever hear of that? Yes. That uh, that uh, originated. You know what it was named? Like where they got the name Colt forty five? From the gun. Nope. Wrong. Boom. Wrong. From what? Colt forty five malt liquor was not named after the handgun. It was named after Jerry Hill, the nineteen sixty three running back for the Baltimore Colts, whose jersey number was oh. number forty five. Wonder why they honored him so much. Colt forty five, they loved him. They also loved him. Um, yeah, but you didn't know that. Well, I know you didn't know that because we just talked about you not knowing that. That's right. And then uh, back to uh, Dean Peterson news. Um, uh, the guy who invented the Kodak Insta. Insta no, we're done with camera. his got, life. Just more of his bio. No more of his bio. We're <laughs> not. I I called done with that. Okay, how about this? Speaking of guns, the British military mm-hmm. once took a Vickers World War One machine gun in 1963. I couldn't find the date. I looked everywhere, but they fired that machine gun continuously for seven days. They took a Vickers Non-stop. machine gun. A, a a machine gun to see. How long? This was such a well-made machine gun. They said, "Let's see how long it takes to jam." Oh, Just continuously shooting it. Yeah, it went for seven days nonstop. How did they feed 20- it ammo? It's, I don't know. However, you do. They just I know, kept but feeding. you you gotta re like after the all the no, ammo is used up, then you have to. No, they have them like on big long string. You just keep feeding oh, like them, a I big think. long. Yeah. 
I guess. I don't, I don't know anything about machine guns. But anyway. Why they, did they do that? They kept it running to see. When, like, it was so well made. They're like, how long, what is the life of one of these? When will it jam and, and, and So they So it's shot for seven days? Seven days straight to see when it would, if and when it would malfunction. It never did, and they just gave up. Oh, my God. It was that good. Like nonstop shooting. Well, isn't that nice? A lot of shooting, a lot of bullets. Isn't that lovely? Uh, and then I think the biggest thing I have, longest thing, is this. Okay. The 2,000-year-old two, seeds were mm-hmm. discovered in 1963. Okay. Inside an ancient jar in Israel. Okay. Okay? They estimated yeah. that they were 2,000 years old. Wow. Seeds. Mm-hmm. So they plant, they didn't. But then somebody found them, and then they just put them in a drawer somewhere. Yeah. And they were planted in 2005. They were? Yeah. Just to see what would yeah. happen. And a tree that had been extinct for over 1,800 years sprouted. Really? Yep. This is according to National Geographic. A male date palm tree. Mm-hmm. It's a date, a date palm tree. Okay. And they named it Methuselah. It sprouted from a 2,000-year-old seed nearly a decade ago. Uh, and it's thriving today. They checked back in in mm-hmm. on it in 2008, and they said still thriving. Uh, wow, where and, is it? I wonder. Uh, in Israel, according to Israeli researcher Elaine Soloway, she says he is a big boy now. Uh, she's the director of the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies at mm-hmm. Kibbutz Kentura in Israel. Okay. He's over three meters, 10 feet tall. He's got a few offshoots. He has flowers and his pollen is good, she says. We pollinated. She sounds f- like she's in love with him. We po- Yeah, I rub him all over my beaver every day. That's we, what it sounds like. We pollinated a female with his pollen, a wild modern female. And yeah, he can make dates. Okay. And uh, so she. This, oh, okay. The, the seed spent years in somebody's drawer. Uh, in the years since Methuselah first sprouted, Soloway has successfully germinated a handful of other date palms from ancient seeds recovered at other archaeological sites around the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to figure out how to make an ancient date grove, she says. To do that, she'll need to grow a female plant from an ancient seed as a mate for Methuselah. So far, at least two other ancient seeds that have sprouted are female. So, And she says, if I succeed at mating these... We would know what kind of dates they ate in those days and what they were like. And that would be exciting. I'm so dumb. Ancient I don't, dates. I didn't realize that trees had male and female versions. Yeah, you I are thought dumb. trees just... You, like, never, you never saw a couple of trees fuck? The seeds fall and then new trees grow from those seeds. They have to germinate. I didn't know other trees germinated them. Yep. I thought like bees did or something. But here's the biggest thing that this is so exciting and cool and amazing that these mm-hmm. old seeds. But in 2012, scientists in Russia were able to grow a plant from a 32,000 year old seed Whoa. that had been buried by an ice age squirrel in Siberia. <laughs> How come the seeds never go bad? I don't know. That's an amazing thing. Yeah. 32,000 years? It's it's crazy. It makes could, you it, you can get real cosmic with it and think like, what is life? It just yeah, it makes you realize like what, we're nothing. We're just does, a blip. When does life begin? If yeah. the seed can sit for thirty two thousand years and fly through space, is it li- living in there? Well, if you think about it, the ocean, wasn't even here originally. Is the it seed a, alive? There was nothing on Earth, and then a, a fucking meteorite hit it, a frozen ice, and then it turned into the ocean. So all the shit that's in the ocean came from space. Are did you are seeds considered alive? Well, according to pro-lifers, I'm sure. No, I'm talking about normal people. No, um, no, they're not alive. Seeds aren't. No, they. When does life begin? When they're germinated. Life begins at. Hello. <laughs> We're getting real cosmic. All right. Life begins when you. No, see, that's the thing. That's the whole pro-life versus pro-choice. Thing. Yeah, I know. Like, We're some, not getting something. That. Life begins at a thought. You, know, right. you always hear people say, honey, you were just a thought in your dad's drink or something. It was like meaning your parents are going to fucking make you. Gross. Who says that? I said a movie or something once. Like that's, You were just a that's drop gross. in your dad's wine or something. Did you ever hear that? I can be making that I'm up. getting all stuffed up again. Maybe I don't hear that. Um, and remember, when we came into January 1963... Mm-hmm. Leftover from 1962 was the number one song in the Billboard chart. Remember what it was? Nope. The Tornadoes. It was an instrumental satellite song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Telstar. 
Yeah, I do remember it. It was shitty. Anyway, I just want to make sure you remember it. Yeah, I, I recalled. January 12th, 1963. The new number one song is by Steve Lawrence. Do you know who that is? No. Here's a hint. Mm-hmm. He sang with Edie Gourmet. Stephen Edie. Oh, okay. You've heard of Stephen yeah, Edie? Yeah, I have heard of Stephen Edie, but I don't, uh, know, I don't know if I know. I'll probably know what it is, but. Yes. Creepy. Yeah. I know that your lips are sweet. Ugh. But our lips must never meet. I belong to someone else. Oh, he belongs to someone else. Right. But remember, this was this was already a chart book. It was written by Jerry Goffman and Carol King. And Bobby V did it in 62. I think we talked about this because I thought it was creepy too. Yeah. Because it sounds like a pedophile. A pedophile. But this is what's in the American Top 23 times. And for Steve Lawrence in 62. Wait a minute. Hmm. Oh, it came out in November 62. Didn't get to number one for 63. Anyway. This sucks. sucks. I'm trying to turn it off as fast as I can. That's terrible. Steve and Edie suck. Yeah. So I was just it Steve and Edie or was it that just was just Steve, Steve Lawrence, Lawrence? But he's okay. saying with Steve, but Steve he recorded Edie. again with Edie. I think another I don't know time. Either. Yeah. But Steve and Edie, I only know because because of Saturday Night Live when they when they did when Phil Hartman and Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. they had the Frank Sinatra show. Mm-hmm. And he had Steve and Edie on the guest, and Mike Myers was Steve. Oh. He was like, this is Steve and Edie Gourmet. And he was like, uh, kick his ass, Steve. Like, he got in a fight with Sting. Remember Sting came oh, out there? Oh, yeah. I kind of remember that. And he that. was like, yeah. oh, Sting. Like, something like that. He was like, kick his ass, Steve. And he tries to, then Sting beats the shit out of Steve Lawrence. Uh, it was funny. I don't know if I ever saw that. No, it was Billy Idol. Sting was playing Billy Idol. That's right. And he was like, kick his ass. And that's when he said, I got chunks of guys like you in my oh, stool. Yeah. Phil Hartman was the best. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was one of the best sketches ever, uh, in my opinion, my humble opinion. I am H.O. What? I am H.O. What does that mean? In my humble opinion. I think you're thinking of LMFAO, the band. No, I see people put I am H.O. all the time. Oh, I don't know that I've ever seen that or ever known what that meant. Now you do. I think I thought that was a prayer. <laughs> when people said that. And then January 26th, that didn't last. Steve Lawrence didn't last very long. So we have the very next uh, song, mm-hmm. The Rooftop Singers. Mm-hmm. See if you know this song. Oh, yeah. Country Walk blues right song. in, sit right down. Walk right in, yeah. Written by Gus I love Cannon. this one. This is a great one. This was originally recorded by Cannon's Jug Stompers in 1929. This is a new version by the Rooftop Singers. Yeah, this is great. Became an international hit. Spent two weeks at number one. Five weeks atop the easy listening chart. This was nominated for a Grammy in the category for Best Folk Recording. Mm-hmm. It's a good song. This group was composed of Eric Darling and Bill Svano and former jazz singer Lynn Taylor. Okay. And they were all murdered. 
No, but he was murdered. Okay, they weren't murdered. But Eric Darling was born in Baltimore, Maryland. All right. <laughs> we don't have to. We're good. You don't want their whole life story? Nope. I do not. What about Dean Peterson? You want to hear more about him? Nope. You know what? You're a... No. You're, stop. You're racist towards Dean Peterson's. And then we already have the... I guess I don't have much for 1963 because I already have the third number one song. Jeez, uh, it's a hit parade right now. Yeah. February 9th. Well, these didn't last very long. Yeah. So the next one was February 9th, 1963. This is Paul and Paula. Hey, Paula. Hey, Paula. I want to marry you. Hey. What are you doing? Hey, hey, Paula. There it is. Yeah. I want to marry you. Hey, hey, Paula. This is recorded by Paul and Paula. So Paul was singing to Paula. It hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. I thought it was Richie Valens who sang this. Nope. Oh. Paul was the song's writer. Ray Hildebrand, a student at Texas Howard Payne University, University, a Baptist institution in the city of Brownwood. Paula was Jill Jackson, the niece of the owner of the boarding house where Ray lived. Oh. How about that? This would be a fun duet to do at a karaoke. Yeah, I didn't. I don't never knew Paula sang in it. I only oh, knew yes, the first line. Uh, they took inspiration from Annette Funicello's hit "Tall Paul," mm-hmm. I guess, when they wrote this. I don't know what that means. And they performed this song on a local radio station, and it became popular enough the duo to try to make a professional recording. They went I to a studio. They went to a studio in Fort Worth, Texas. And we're fortunate enough to find producer Major Bill Smith. Yeah. All right. The rest is it's history. history. Uh, this is a good one. Uh, I don't know if it's good. It's nice in 60s. It's nice in 60s. Uh, and then on February 11th. Hello? What? Hello. February 11th. All right. 1963, you want to know what happened? I do. The Beatles recorded uh, a song called Twist and Shout. Mm-hmm. Not one of my favorites. And it was released on their first UK album, Please Please Me. Uh, it was based on the Eiley Brothers version. Yeah. And featured John Lennon on lead vocals. Maybe that's one of the reasons I didn't like it is because it's not an original Beatles song. But here's the thing about it. Uh, John had a sore throat. Oh, right. So I mean, you hear how singing. he sounds so yeah. raspy on that? Yeah. The song was the last to be recorded during a marathon 13-hour album session. Jeez. Producer George Martin knew that Lennon's voice would suffer from the performance, so we left it until last, because the way that song is, he's got to kind of yell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, with only 15 minutes of scheduled recording time remaining, Lennon had a cold. He was drinking milk and sucking a cough drop Why to soothe his sore throat. Why was he drinking milk? To try to soothe his throat. Yeah, but throat. to sing. That's like the worst thing to do if you're going to sing. But they said it, I don't know. He did it to soothe, soothe his throat. His Wacky co- 60s. His coughing is audible on the album, as is the cold's effect on his voice. He remarked that his voice was not the same for a long time afterward, and then it felt like sandpaper to swallow. Nodes. Yeah, he got nodes on his yeah, vocal cords. Initially, he felt ashamed of his performance in the song, because mm-hmm. he knew he could sing better than that, but now it doesn't bother, bother me, he says. Later. No, well, he, was on, say, he doesn't well, say that dead. now. Yeah, he said later. He said it didn't bother him. You can hear that. I'm just a frantic guy doing his best. A second take was attempted, but Lennon had nothing left, and it was abandoned. Mm, well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's not one of but my favorites. But that today was recorded. Okay. And then on February 20th, 1963, a family saga covering several decades of westward expansion of the 19th century. Mm-hmm was released, including the Gold Rush, the Civil War, and the Building of the Railroads. Directed by John Ford Henry, no, directed by John Ford and Henry Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Written by James R. Webb, starring James Stewart, John Wayne, and Gregory Peck. Oh, what movie? How the West Was Won. Did we see, watch the preview of that? I don't think so. No, I've never seen it. So I don't. This was nominated for. Best picture. I don't know why we're talking about this. 
Well, it's star-studded, that's for sure. Yeah, it must have been uh, must have been the top grossing movies. I'm not sure what we're talking about. It's it's something it either was nominated something for a best, best picture, picture or it was It probably was. High grossing. We'll just say, let's it just was, go with that. We'll it, just say that. Let's just say it was and if it wasn't then F who the cares? people to look it up. Although James Stewart's character was only supposed to be 28 in the movie. Yeah. Stewart was actually 53 at the time of oh filming. Oh, my God. <laughs> a little bit different. Uh, stuntman Bob Morgan was seriously injured and almost died while performing a stunt in this picture. Toward, oh. the, toward the end of the film, there's a gunfight on a moving train mm-hmm. between the sheriff and a gang of train robbers. That alone makes me want to watch it. Yeah. Morgan was one of the stuntmen playing a robber and was crouched next to a pile of logs on a flat car. Mm-hmm. The chains holding the logs together snapped, and Morgan was crushed by the falling logs. Oh, my God. He was so badly hurt, it took him five years to recover to the point where he was able to move by himself and walk unaided. Well, and back then, stunt people weren't paid shit. Oh, no. They didn't have they, any insurance, yeah. or he was probably destitute after they that. They were behind the Arby's with, giving blowjobs with the professional yeah. bowlers. They are, seriously. Yep. And then on uh, March 2nd, 1963, the Four Seasons take over the number one spot on the Billboard chart mm-hmm. with this song that I know you know. Walk Like a Man? Yep. Written by Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio. Supported by the Four Seasons. Who redid this? Somebody redid this, didn't they? Divine. No, that's not what I was thinking. 1985, somebody redid it. Mary Jane Girls covered it. This is in the 1996 film Sleepers. Hmm. Also in 1993's film Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, that makes sense. This is part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Really? Yep. It's all right. During the sessions that produced this hit recording, the fire department received an emergency call from the Abbey Victoria Hotel, where the studio was, as producer Bob Crew was insisting upon recording the perfect take. Smoke and water started to seep into the studio. The room directly above the studio was on fire, but crew had booked the studio. He had blocked the studio door. He continued recording until a few firemen used their axes on the door and pulled crew out. Oh, my God. How about that? During a different take of than this, obviously? Uh, I guess. It was, it was of, they were producing, yeah, this hit recording, I guess. Wow. I guess they just, maybe if you listen close, you can hear it. You hear somebody breaking down the door. Yeah. All right, get the floor out of there. Um, yeah, there you go. All right. Got some info about that one you didn't know. A little tidbit. And then on March 5th, 1963, mm-hmm. do you want to guess the airplane celebrity death of 1963? Ooh, just one celebrity? Just one celebrity. I don't know. Her name rhymes with... Uh, Fatsy Blind. I was going to say that. You were going to say Fatsy Blind? I was going to say Patsy Klein. No, wrong. I was just getting ready to nope. say that. It's it's Natsy. Stop it. Brian. Yes, Patsy Klein. Did I you know she died on an airplane? It. Yeah, I did. I didn't know she I didn't even know she was dead. <laughs> oh, I thought well. she was still alive. No, she's not. Well, she You know the circumstances of her death in the plane and everything? I don't I used Just to, tell the story. You tell no, the story. I no, I don't know it well enough to tell it. I think I at one point I did know it. Well, I do. You tell it. She performed a benefit at the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall, Kansas City, Kansas, mm-hmm. where uh, avid listener Brendan Kane lives. Yeah. He lives in that memorial hall. He's down, <laughs> down on his luck. Does he listen? No, I don't think so. God damn it. Uh, anyway, she performed that benefit for the family of disc jockey Cactus Jack Call. He had died in an automobile crash a little over a month earlier. He was a longtime DJ, but had switched, uh, or he was a longtime DJ, uh, at the age of 39, he passed away. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, also performing in the show were George Jones, George Riddle, and the Jones Boys, Billy Walker, Dottie West, Wilma Lee, and Stoney Cooper. George McCormick, <laughs> the Clinch Mountain Boys. They were all on the airplane? As well, No, they were all performing at this point. Oh, who cares? Why are you naming all the people? I don't know. I, this is a big benefit. The all Cowboy right, so Copas and Hawkshaw Hawkins. Anyway, she was ill. Patsy Klein was ill with the flu, mm-hmm. but still gave three performances at 2 p.m., 5.15, and with an 8 wow. p.m. show added. Due she probably to, had some manager that was crazy. Due was to popular demand, yeah. All the sh- but it was all the shows were standing room only. They were packed because she was so popular, even yeah. though she was sick. Um, for the 2 p.m. show, she wore a sky blue tulle-laden dress. Tool. Tool? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never heard of, seen that word before. I don't know what that means. For the 515 it's show. It's stiff net like stuff that goes under dresses. I didn't say I want to know. Oh. Uh, <laughs> for the 515 show, she wore a red shocker, whatever that is. I thought a shocker was two it's in the what, pink, one in the stink. I think that is what they're talking about. <laughs> oh, she yeah. wore that. She was wearing some guy's hand. And for the closing show at 8 p.m., Klein wore a white chiffon, closing the evening to a thunderous ovation. Her final song was the last she had recorded the previous month, I'll Sail My Ship Alone. Kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Knowing that's the last song she sang. She had spent the night at the Townhouse Motor Hotel. Boy, not very. I know, yeah, but it was the 60s. So yeah, she was true. unable. To, I bet motels and hotels weren't that bad yeah. in the 60s. Or right. they were all bad. Or maybe they're all just shitty. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, in she, movies, they always look shitty. She was unable to fly out the day after the concert because Fairfax Airport was fogged in. Oh. West asked Patsy to ride in the car with her and husband Bill back to Nashville, a 16 hour drive. But Klein refused, saying, don't worry about me, Hoss. When it's my time to go, it's my time. Well, I wouldn't want to be in a 16-hour drive either. Yeah. I probably would have died, too. So on March 5th, she called her mother from the motel, checked out at 12.30 p.m., going the short distance to the airport, and boarding a Piper PA-24 Comanche plane. The plane stopped once in Missouri to refuel, Mm-hmm. and subsequently landed in Dyersburg Municipal Airport in Dyersburg, Tennessee at 5 p.m. Okay. So she was she's pretty fine. close at this time. Yeah. Like she's going back to Nashville, mm-hmm. and she's in Tennessee by 5 p.m. Hughes was the pilot, but he was not trained in instrument flying. What? How can you be a pilot and not be not trained in instrument flying? I don't know, but Hawkins had accepted Billy Walker's place after Walker left on a commercial flight to take care of a stricken family member. The Dyersburg, Tennessee airfield manager suggested that they stay the night because of high winds and inclement weather, offering them free rooms and meals. Mm-hmm. But Hughes responded, Ah, I've already come this far. We'll be there before you know it. Who's Hughes again? Randy Hughes. Was the pilot? The owner and pilot of the aircraft, Ramsey Randy Doris Hughes. Doris? Yeah, he was 34, but he was also Patsy Cline's manager and the son-in-law of Cowboy Copas. So he was the manager, and that's why he wanted to keep going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He said, I've already come this far. We'll be there before you know it, see? Ah, see? Ah." The plane (laughs) took off at 6.07 p.m., Mm -hmm. and Hughes' flight instructor, Elmo Merriweather, you know, everybody knows Elmo Merriweather, Mm -hmm. he had also trained... Jim Reeves, whose plane crashed the following year. Whoa. And uh, neither pilot was instrument rated, and both attempted to navigate by visual flight rules, VFR. Okay. Which proved impossible in the driving rain faced by both flights. Oh, man. Klein's flight crashed in heavy weather on the evening of March 5th, 1963, and they recovered her wristwatch that had stopped at 6.20 p.m. Oh, man. So I wonder when... Does it stop on impact? I think. The plane was found some 90 miles from its Nashville destination in a forest outside Camden, Tennessee. Forensic examination concluded that everyone aboard had been killed instantly. Until the wreckage was discovered the following dawn and reported on the radio, friends and family had not given up hope. Oh, man. Endless calls tied up the local telephone exchanges to such a degree that other emergency calls had trouble getting through. The lights at the destination Cornell Fort Air Park were kept on throughout the night as reports of the missing plane were broadcast on radio and TV. So it was a big deal. Roger Miller and a friend went searching for survivors. As fast as I could, I ran through the woods screaming their names. Through the brush and the trees, and I came up over this little rise. Oh, my God, there they were. It was ghastly. The plane had crashed nose down. Shortly after the bodies were removed, looters scavenged the area. 
Some of the items which were recovered were eventually donated to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Among them, among them were Klein's wristwatch, mm-hmm. a Confederate flag cigarette lighter, oh, a studded belt, and three pairs of gold lame slippers. Oh. Klein's fee and her attire from the last performance were never recovered. So it might be out there in the woods somewhere. It might be. Could be. When do you know? Do you remember when my date was? Yeah. March? Okay. The very next day, March sixth. Okay. Nineteen sixty-three. That brings us to uh, something you're going to tell us about on March sixth, nineteen sixty-three. So, what are you going to tell me about? I'm going to tell you about Carol Swoboda Thompson. Carol Swoboda Thompson, y'all, sounds like a hottie with a body. Stop that. What? All right. So she was. Stop that. She, her father was a respected local business owner. Oh, and what? What local? What local? What locality? Um, she was in, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And. The Twin Cities. She was the wife of an up and coming attorney. Okay. And the mother of four children, ages six to 13. And I don't know if you know this, but around 1962, it was chilly in Minnesota, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad glad you're here. It's always cold in Minnesota. Uh, The home of the Vikings. So, um. team ever. The she was described as like the prototypical early nineteen sixties wife and mother. Oh, so hot! So she hot. she there was everything but the white picket fence outside their house. Oh, they could. Why didn't they have the fence? She was active. She was active in her Presbyterian church and in the the Scouts and did all the things that stay at home mothers in those days did. But they definitely don't put up white picket fences because she doesn't have one. No. She's probably praying for one at church. She had a million friends with whom she played bridge and she got together for coffee parties. Oh, those bridge ladies know how to get it on i know that coffee party coffee party so at about 8 30 in the morning on march 6th 1963 yeah so she she was surprised by an intruder in her home an intruder in her home in minnesota comfortable highland park neighborhood of st paul highland park st paul that is a nice place and i've actually heard of that because i listen to local vikings radio when they talk about highland park so according to newspaper accounts her killer dick W.C. Anderson. Oh, Dick W.C. Anderson is a murderer, y'all. He struck her on the head with a piece of rubber hose oh, and well, attempted that's... to fake a bathtub drowning. When that didn't work, he tried to shoot her, but the gun misfired. Wow, he's really, he's like just kind of a comedy of errors. Yeah, he battered her face with the butt of a Luger pistol and stabbed her more than 50 times with a kitchen knife. Okay, here's the thing. If you have a pistol in your hand, just shoot her. She'll yeah. be dead. You Instead know, of bludgeoning all the her with it, and all that. all that. So just shoot her. You got a gun in your hand. Just you know what her. bludgeoning is, right? Yes, yeah, when you beat the hell out of somebody. Oh, okay. Because oh, you were doing a, it, when you said bludgeoning a minute ago, you were it looked like you were doing a knife movement. No, you're hitting him. You hit something, bludgeoning. Yeah. And let me tell you how early in life I knew what bludgeoning was, just in case you don't know. Oh. Know, maybe I knew before you. When I was in high school... You didn't know till high school? Well, I mean, maybe I knew before that, but I I remember it most in high school. Uh, we would have uh, we would have high school football scouts would go to the other teams that we're going to play, mm-hmm. and they would come up with a report. Uh, and that high school football coach would give us the report every week of the team we're about to play mm-hmm. and what plays they like and who their stars are and who to watch for and all mm-hmm. that. In hindsight, now I'm thinking about it, I really wish I would have paid more attention to that. It would have been helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the cover always said some kind of alliteration with how we were going to destroy that team. Oh. So every time we played the Bears, which four years we played two teams called, there was the Golden Bears and there was the Green Bears. This is fascinating. They always said bludgeon the Bears. Oh, and, and I was like, I'm going to bludgeon those fucking Bears. So you learned what it was. So I always bludgeon. That's probably what I knew, bludgeon. I, and I think of that every time. It was a fascinating story. Boring. All right, so fuck you. Yeah. Sorry, Carol Thompson was able to stagger to a neighbor's house to get help. Oh, she's sta- wait, she's still alive. Yeah, this guy left. Well, the, it'll get. I'll get more into it in a little bit. Wait, wait. Okay, she's staggering. When the neighbor answered the door, she found a woman standing barefoot, blood streaming from her head and face. Oh, another woman? No, this was Carol Thompson. Oh, when the, a, when the neighbor the door, opened the door, she found that. Okay. She was so bloody, they didn't even know who she <laughs> I was. she went to the neighbor's house, and the neighbor also had the shit beat out <laughs> no. by some other murderer. No, that would have been something. That would have been some luck. Oh, yeah. let's go to the third house. Oh, you also were bludgeoned. 
So um, the, she said, I got a knife in my throat. A man did it. He came to the door. Won't you please help me? Oh, my goodness. So she was rushed to Anchor Hospital where surgeons took a three-inch knife blade from her throat, but she died three hours later. Oh, man. Our hero died. The brutal murder shocked the Twin Cities and traumatized the Highland Park neighborhood. Man. So Twin Cityans were stunned. Well, this is only a couple of years after the Vikings started playing. Yeah, so they were stunned by front page headlines that evening and the next morning and shaken by rumors of a killer at large in the community. Oh, no. I would be nervous, too. This was an orderly, affluent neighborhood. They, oh, these you, kind of things were unheard of. Orderly as opposed to the disorderlies, the Fat Boys movie. And and she was, orderlies. in many ways, up kind of like this utter middle cla- upper middle class paradigm kind of... She was just a highly utter improbable victim. Upper. She was... Yeah, you wouldn't think... You think you're safe. In Minnesota... Everybody, bet, everybody saw themselves their, in her. So oh, they yeah, were like... They don't lock their doors. Locking, they started locking their doors, and there was all this fear and panic throughout the area... Um, because they thought this homicidal maniac was walking door to door, and it was a gay maniac. No, homicidal. Oh, you didn't say homosexual. No. Would you say that there was a panic in the disco? There could have been. Well, there wasn't discos yet. Oh. So, driven by intense public pressure, St. Paul police mounted an exhaustive investigation. I didn't know intense public pressure had their driver's license. But they soon Bam. focused their attention on T. Eugene Thompson, the victim's 35-year-old husband. Tug. After receiving reports of his purchase of more than a million dollars in life insurance on his wife and a history of womanizing. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. T. Eugene was mm-hmm. her husband's name? Yes. So now they're thinking this guy hired this dude to mm-hmm. come murder and stab his wife in the neck. Yep. And he vehemently denied his part in the... But he's Crime. known to vehemently do everything. He vehemently eats nachos. He vehemently That's takes right. a nap. He That's vehemently right. golfs. So pieces of the pistol's vehemently grip. Vehemently clips his toenails. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry. Pieces of the pistol's grip, yeah. which had broken off during the attack, were left at the scene. Okay. And so he, the guy, if he hired him to kill this guy, he must have told him, don't shoot her, just bludgeon her with the well, yeah. pistol. So anyway, um, it led into the pistol were there. And that's what led the investigators to Anderson, who was this ex-convict from Michigan. All right. And, you know, he confessed to the killing a Michigan guy in Minnesota. He's an ex-convict. Yeah. But he, he, he said confessed. that he was hired by Norman Mistrion, who was a former Twin Cities prize fighter. Oh. And that Whoa, guy was some hired. boxing action in here. Well, that guy was hired on behalf of T. Eugene Thompson. So T. Eugene hired a boxer to hire somebody to kill his wife. Yeah, like that, a middleman. A middleman. So that's what you do. You don't hire someone to kill your wife. You hire a professional boxer to hire somebody because there's nobody who's going to get it right more easily and will do everything more smoothly than someone who's been punched in the face 150,000 times. That's right. And, and has brain damage. And he only paid $3,000, which in oh, today's money would be, what, a million, three million? I have no idea what today's million. money is, and I, I would like you to do that research. I know. I you know are you dedicated to this podcast, or are you just <laughs> half-assing this podcast? I'm, listen, I don't know. I try. Do you try? I do, a little bit. Do you? A little bit. Seems like there's not much trying. Not much effort. Seems like I'm carrying this podcast right now. All right. So T. Eugene, Oprah, he, they, he went by Cotton. Schwing. Because he had white hair. He went by what? Cotton. Who did? T. Eugene Thompson. T. Eugene? T. U. What does the T. U. stand for? T. T. Eugene. <laughs> not T. Eugene. <laughs> T. T Eugene. Eugene. I thought you were saying T. Eugene. So I was like, I know, like what is that? T. Okay. Eugene. So he grew up in Elmore, Minnesota, which is a small town on the um, Iowa border. Oh, and only idiots are from Elmore, Minnesota. He no was offense. Um, <laughs> no offense to our Elmore, Minnesota. Fans. He was at, at that time. He was a high school classmate, and he played high school football with um, Walter Mondale. Walter Mondale. Yeah. That dude knew how to play football and. Please, women. All right. When you see Walter Mondale, you, you can't sh- women. Walter Mondale was a poli- politician. I know Walter Mondale was. Oh, okay. I remember he lost to uh, Bush, the first Bush, right? Uh, Is that right? Yeah, and he was actually on an episode of Cheers, I believe. But if you look up Walter Mondale right now, any woman, I don't care, age, millennials, um and so Mondale was X, quoted as saying, Gen- that, "Baby boomers, no, 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 no. Wait, look up a picture of Walter Mondale right now, 
and try not to get sexually aroused. All Just right. try. All you right. can't. So what Mondale says, this is what Mondale sweater. said about the guy. All right. He said, we grew up together. His family lived just a block from mine. What? His Mondale dad was lived in the, his murder? Yep. His grew dad was in the poultry business. It oh, was really chicken. painful for me when he got into severe trouble with the law. He did something for which there was no excuse. He had to pay that price, and he did. He's got a nice family. I feel sorry for them. I extend my deepest sympathies to them. So Thompson. That's why he didn't win the presidency. When Thompson was, when Cotton, whatever you want to call this guy. Cotton Thompson? When he was young, he lied about his age and joined the Navy after high school. He just wanted to get in sooner. Mm-hmm. And he served in a, on, on a minesweeper in the Pacific during World War II. Oh, minesweeper is a cool game. Then he in, attended college and um, law school and met Carol Swoboda. Wait, 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 he attended college at law school? And law school. Oh, do we know what colleges are law schools? Sure, if you care. He attended Macalester College and St. Paul College of Law. Oh, that, see that, now, okay, now I have a fair reference. That was those important. Are, those, uh, now I know that he probably went to school with Jim Schmuck and uh, and over at law school, and he went to, uh, oh, he probably practiced law with Marty Rumble. All right. That helps me. That's uh, puts. Now I get it. Okay. So uh, he met Carol Swoboda, who had grown up in St. Paul, and the two married in 1948. 1948 marriage, huh? Hmm. So interesting. Um, they had a nice life. It seemed like, seemed but like it, seemingly, um, but she was she was over overbearing, is what it was. No. Was no. it that, was it that she didn't do but, enough research on their podcast? Cotton was, he could have been a very wealthy man. He had a bright future in the law and perhaps in local politics as well. Yeah. He might have even been a judge. Oh. Um, but he. On his way to being a judge, but something derailed it. But he was a notorious womanizer. Oh. And he had been taking out life insurance policies on his wife for fi- of 15 years in bits and pieces. Because he wanted to be with other ladies. He had a long-running girlfriend. He had several girlfriends, but oh. one in particular who he was eager to marry, according to her testimony. Oh, well, it's her name. She was not named. She's not named? So so um, the the police said that Thompson carefully masterminded the hit, including getting rid of the family's dachshund and removing a phone that Carol Thompson could have used to call for help. That poor wiener dog. Then Mastrian, the hitman he hired, was a former client. That's the boxer? Mm-hmm. He was a guy who was known to police in, in and out of trouble. Oh, boy. Um, he had been involved in the murder of an underworld type years earlier. Underworld. And T. Eugene was his defense attorney in that. T. Eugene, not T. Eugene. So, unbeknownst to T. Eugene, yeah. Mastrian subcontracted the job. Oh, so he, he didn't, didn't know that he, didn't he was a hire the man. boxer to hire somebody else. He just right. hired the boxer. Mm-hmm. But when you hire somebody who's been punched in the face repeatedly, chances are it's not going to go great. So according to several underworld sources, three or four of underworld these guys turned Mastrian down. And then finally, a troubled Korean War combat veteran named Dix W.C. Anderson took oh. the job. Oh, so that's what I didn't know he was a troubled korean war veteran and what are you gonna hire a boxer has been punched repeatedly or a troubled korean war veteran yeah either one's probably not the best bet to kill your wife i know that's what i'm thinking so well, his maybe, six week trial maybe just don't kill your wife like just that's, that's the most moral maybe, of the story maybe just look at some uh, porno magazines every once in a while i yeah. guess they didn't have them then maybe they had something they didn't have they, they didn't have uh a porn hub they didn't have full penetration they didn't. I don't. The I don't think so. Well, they definitely didn't have Pornhub. This guy, Pornhub, could have saved this guy's life. I don't know. So his six-week trial began in late October and drew intense media attention. Ooh, intense media attention. So the case, the state's case, was based on a chain of evidence that included the one point one million dollars in life insurance and the presence of another woman. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious this dude did it, man. And then they also con- counted on the dramatic, detailed testimony of Dick Anderson. Oh, yeah. The actual okay. killer. Now let's just jump to the chase. Where did this guy rot in hell and rot in prison? Well, the defense Where did he accept his was led life? by respected criminal attorney, Hyam Siegel. Oh, and they Hyam insisted Siegel's that involved. Thompson was a loving and dutiful husband, unjustly accused by untruthful witnesses and besmirched by misleading evidence. You said dutiful and besmirched. I did. 
presumably against the advice of his counsel, Thompson himself took the stand, which they ne- they tell you never to yeah, do that. Yeah, never do that. In the defense. By most accounts, he did more harm than good in his cause, which is also usually the case. Yes, he, he tripped over his own shoe, and he had he was eating a Kit Kat through most of it and got all over his face. That's right. So Kit after Kat 12 hours of deliberation, the jury decided Thompson was guilty as charged, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Guilty as charged. <laughs> he said that like that. So he, the, Where did he go to jail? Well, after the verdict, the yeah. the children were cared for by their maternal grandparents, oh, Otto and Antonia Swoboda. Wait, what were the kids' names? Those were the chil- those were the grandparents' names. Otto and Antonia Swoboda oh, were the they grandparents. Took care of Otto and Antonia took care, care of, the kids. of the kids. Yes, I don't remember there being kids. There, they had four kids. Oh, four of them. Do you remember what their names were? Did you say? Oh, Jesus. I don't care. I don't Who care. Who cares? I just don't remember their being kids. I guess I was... Uh, I did not say their names. I was doing other things. I was maybe clipping my toenails during All that right. Um, As are our listeners. It's a, given, it's a fact that most of our listeners are clipping their toenails while they're listening. So the oldest child, Jeffrey, became a lawyer. Jeffrey, what a stupid name. And no la- offense. Later served as Rice County Attorney in Fairbault, Minnesota. Oh, well, I, you know, I take it back. That's not a stupid name. I just know an idiot named Jeff Barton. <laughs> that guy sucks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what you're even talking about. That guy sucks. Anyway, that guy, that's Jeffrey's probably fine. So... Paroled in 1983, T. Eugene Thompson resettled in the Twin Cities and remarried. What? He was paroled for yep. murder? Yep. You don't get paroled for murder, do you? You don't. You do. What? What? A convicted felon, he was prohibited from practicing law and remained on parole until he died on August 7th, 2015 at his 88th birthday. And he never murdered anybody again? Nope. Wait, who was the Vikings quarterback in 1983? I think it was Tommy Kramer. What? What does that have to do with when well, he was paroled? Well, it'll just give me a sense of like, oh, yeah. Oh, no. Archie. Wait. Archie Manning was the Vikings quarterback in 1983 and 84. Huh. I didn't know he played for the Vikings. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, that just gives me a sense for uh, when. When it was. That's what? what? That's so silly. Oh, that. Whoever the Vikings quarterback is tells you when in your life it was. Do you realize how sad that is? What a sad state of affairs that no, is? No, it was Tommy Kramer. It was Tommy Kramer, I think. I think you're silly. And yeah. so that was the rather dull story of the murder of Carol Thompson. That was not dull at all. Hold on. It was, it was hard to find details about it. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, you no, no. Fuckers. <laughs> so that is the beginning no, of 1963, you, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah, we'll pick up in March in uh, the let next Let us know if you like the show. Um, yeah, if you don't like it, let us know why. And if you do, let us know. If and you do like so it. So we, we know how, who's listening. Yeah, tell all your friends. Don't shut up about it until you, they stop being your friends. <laughs> That's always good advice from Joe. It is, yeah. Just go on and on about it. You should listen to this podcast on American Timelines. These two jokers, and it's not. It's not like, it's not like, All right, it's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Maximum ego trip. I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. Said that we're so proud of hearing about. One more time, I said we're so tired of hearing about the six days. Well, make me shut my mouth. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. America!